economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to the show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, welcome. And last time we talked about inflation and it led into the idea of crises happening and how politicians react to that, how we react to that as citizens. And and I thought it was a worthwhile area to explore on the podcast. So Justin, you want to kind of give us a thumbnail sketch in general of what, what we're talking about? Sure. So there is a quote by, you know, the statesman Ram Emanuel, which is to the effect that you should never let a crisis go to waste. (laughs) And this is uh, advice for governors. And it's actually kind of pretty Machiavellian advice. And the idea is that crises are opportunities for governments to put into place programs that are going to outlast the crisis. So there's this uh, concept in political science called institutional nesting, which is, you know, once certain institutions get into place in the government, part of what they are doing is not only to solve the problems that they were supposedly instituted for, part of the job also is to ensure the continuation of their institution. And I think once we understand that this is the case, we can see that it is in the government's interest to not only use, not let a crisis go to waste, but to amplify crises and to make crises look bigger than and more more dangerous than they actually are so that they can usurp more power and get the citizenry to give up just a little bit of more freedom each time. And I think you see this throughout history. And uh, I know I last podcast, I said, you know, since I you know graduated high school in 2000, I've seen this over and over again. You know, we had 9-11 and we had the war in Iraq and then we had the Great Recession. And then we've had a series of crises throughout the 2010s. And here we are today and we are just finishing, or hopefully at least, uh, we are wrapping up the coronavirus because we are now on week 60 something of two weeks to stop the spread. Um, (laughs) So I I know one of the things that, and I think maybe Peter would be good to talk about this. There's a book, Crisis and Leviathan by Robert Higgs, and he has this ratchet theory. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, sure. So Robert Higgs's theory of the ratchet effect, it's, it's made a big splash at the time, and it's something that's sort of persisted. But the ratchet effect is basically this, is that when a crisis occurs, we either legitimate or you know illegitimate, but considered legitimate, no matter what the case is, there are going to be new government powers that are conferred. And so the government, for example, after September 11, passed the Patriot Act. And so the Patriot Act allowed for a lot more widespread, like wiretapping, listening to phone calls without, you know, approval or, you know, the normal channels that's, that are required for the government warrants to access people's records. 
And so the ratchet effect idea is this, is that when there's a crisis like a ratchet, you pull the ratchet. And when you pull the ratchet, a lot of, you know, maybe there's some tension and some give back, but you've ratcheted the government up to a higher level than it was before. And it doesn't go back when you pull that ratchet. And so, you know, it's been a long time since the Patriot Act was passed. You know, a, a good example of this yesterday was Rudy Giuliani. His lawyer recently came out and said, well, my client feels as if he's being treated like a terrorist. And like the big irony there is Rudy Giuliani was very supportive of a lot of measures to basically assume that uh, certain American citizens were terrorists and in their investigations. And then maybe, you know, after the fact, they'll be vindicated. And so there's some irony here that basically whenever there's a crisis, that crisis leads to new policies and those new policies tend to stick around after the crisis. And part of this is like the nesting phenomenon. Part of this is just, you know, laws, legislation that are put in place. Yeah, I think the institutional nesting, I like that word. I think maybe I've heard that before, but I wasn't sure. Uh, the CDC's announcement of that vaccinated individuals didn't have to wear their mask anywhere all of a sudden when just two weeks earlier, the limitations were, oh, well, now you don't have to wear it within your house or something. And, and to me, that was an example of them starting to have power slipping because they saw that people weren't following their rules. And they're like, you know what, in order for us to maintain power, we need to loosen this thing up and create the incentives for other people to get vaccinated. And it just seemed to be more and more distant from any, I didn't hear like new study says vaccinated people, like it didn't seem to be generated from research at all. I just felt like it was institutional nesting. Like they can maintain relevance by saying, oh, the CDC let us be free as long as we were vaccinated. I, I felt like it was to keep themselves empowered more. It was from the science, Russ. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, there was no study that they quoted. It was obviously just because people reacted angrily to yeah. their statement two weeks earlier <laughs> that they were going to keep these draconian measures in place for longer. And I, I don't remember who said it, but I completely agree with it that, look, the only way this ends is if individuals stop following these rules. And then these institutions, like you said, Russ, they are going to rewrite their rules such that the people who weren't following their rules can now be said to follow their rules. And they're going to say that they plan to do it this way all along, mm -hmm. right? And I think, so in some ways, I think that this shows that maybe the ratchet thesis is a little bit flawed because the the thesis of the ratchet is, you know, ratchets only work one direction, right. right? And they might move slowly, but they only work one direction. And I think some of the things that we've seen is that that might be a little bit too pessimistic. You know, when people push back, there does seem to be a little bit of, you know, you can make these institutions give some of the power back if you forcefully demand it. Yeah, I, th I think depending on how you put it out, it could be too pessimistic. I will say, I think we're still at right now at a higher level of government power over our lives than we were before coronavirus. And so if we're looking at like absolute yeah. values, I agree we've still been ratcheted up. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I can't quite get the analogy, but I'm thinking crank it up 10, loosen up three. Exactly. Or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah that, that's, so that, over that seems to be what's time. happening. Yeah. Three yeah. steps backwards, two steps forward. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Yes. And I, I do want to point out, you know, sometimes people will hear this, these sorts of arguments, the ratchet effect or nesting and think, oh, this sounds conspiratorial to me. Like, you know, government agents aren't in it for, you know, trying to force themselves to stick around and be relevant. That's that you're assuming people are much more evil than they really are. Uh, but I do just want to point out, it's actually not about evil at all. Right. 
In fact, there, there's like really evolutionary aspects it's to this nature, whole thing. Right? Uh, you, you know, in, even if it weren't human nature, think of it like this. We have a lot of government institutions today. Do you think that government institutions that, you know, were established in the past that still exist today, do you think they tended to take more actions to keep themselves relevant or did they tend to try to do their job and just be done with it? Well, any institution that's still alive had to do some amount of staying relevant, right? There's a very evolutionary aspect within institutions that is institutions in the government that are able to keep themselves relevant by finding new crises or, you know, having mission creep where they expand the things that they're trying to do any organization that still exists today had to do that a little bit. All the organizations in the government and history, and maybe there are examples, I don't know of any, but any organization that did say, hey, you know, we bureaucrats want to get our job done. We want to help the people. And then we want our you know, organization to disband because our whole purpose was to get the job done. Any bureaucrat who has that attitude works themselves out of a job, right? Because they get their mission done. They stop being a bureaucrat and they must go do something else. Or they get put into another agency where they do the same thing. And again, they lose their job at the end. And so the nature of government and government bureaucracy is that people who stick around for a long time are people who have these nesting tendencies, whether intentional or not. It, do, it doesn't matter if they intend to be nesters. It's just a sort of an evolutionary result. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe for a second that, that most of them are somehow evil or doing bad intentions. It's simple. It, it's just it's very microeconomic, right? I mean, you're interested in your family. Well, that means I need a job. Oh, I work for the government. I want to do a good job and I want to maintain my job. It's as simple as that. We go home and, and they do things then within their job context, which in the government's standpoint would be increased budget, for instance, so that they can maintain relevancy. One thing that shocked me when I used to do historic renovations on old properties was that the National Park Service is the one who evaluated that. I'm like, they have a buffalo on their logo. <laughs> this is this started out for national parks, right? What, why are they evaluating the drawings for historic relevance for a building in downtown Des Moines, Iowa, right? And so you, you see that, that these agencies evolve over time to just maintain relevancy or what, or whatever the case is. And, and it, it's, it's natural that we should expect that. I think it's healthy if the average person who's listening to this podcast or otherwise starts to understand that that's the nature of it. Because once you do that, then you start to appreciate we should keep those powers more limited, right? We should have checks and balances in place that allow it to fulfill some function, but not to let it go. I want to reiterate what you said too. Like, not only does that let us establish that we need checks and balances, but like you said earlier, you know, this can actually stop you from being angry at these people because mm -hmm. you can recognize that they're not doing it yeah. out of malice. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, um, exactly. That, that's a great point. Yeah. And, and I'll say one of the great things about, you know, uh, we've talked about in this program that a, a lot of like, you know, big time corporations are doing things that we don't like right now. And so we're not always uh, pro corporation. But one of the nice things about the marketplace and capitalism is that this tendency doesn't exist. And here's why. You maybe, if you sell your business, for example, let's say that someone else can do your business better than you. And so, you know, you have the option of, of selling your business. You know, there, you might think, well, it's the same in the free market. You don't want to lose your job. And so you refuse to sell your business. But that's not true because in the free market, when you sell your business, you can get a bunch of money for doing that and you can earn interest on that money. And so by not selling your business, you're giving something up. 
In other words, the market, the way that the market works is it disciplines you to only hold on to something as long as it, you're the most, you're the person who has the most value from holding on to it. As soon as someone else can do something better with the resource you have, a business or, or like an actual physical resource, they're going to be willing to pay you for that. And they're going to pay you more than it's worth for you to keep it. And so it's the exact opposite in markets. When things become invaluable for you to hold on to, you let go in the markets. You know, that's why capitalism at its beginnings was disparaged as being like, oh, this destroys family businesses because, you know, the families have to let go. Well, it's yeah, they let go. It's because they're getting a bunch of money to do that. Right. <laughs> right. And so there is some sort of tendency maybe for people to let go of things that they've had a long time. But that's not a bad thing. And this, you know, the, the crises, bureaucracies that develop kind of show us a good example of why that's not a bad thing. Yeah. And that mechanism isn't there, which looks like a good spot to maybe bring this into the second half of really the monopoly power of government and how that mechanism is absent. And again, once again, precisely why we see government evolve the way it has. So we'll pick up there in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience. Society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty and overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have uh, college credit now available for high school students where you'll learn some microeconomics and get some college credit at the same time. These credits are transferable to any university that you go, but we hope that you'll consider Ottawa University as a great place to go for your college experience. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Justin or Russ today. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at gortneyinstitute.org. All right, so um, I wanted to weave some sort of faith component into this. And Justin, you had an idea on crisis and faith. Yeah, I can never resist bringing in Kierkegaard and in... Either or, or actually more particularly in Fear and Trembling, Kierkegaard has this law, which is a, a book about what it is to live faithfully, uh, what faith is. And Kierkegaard has this conception of the night of faith. And he says, you know, what would somebody who really lives faithfully look like? And his description is somebody who's joyful and is secure in their person and who isn't uh, ridden with anxiety. And so I think if you are, you know, a faithful person, I think that should ease you from being so focused on crises all the time. You should be a happy person. You should be a joyful person. The constant threat of crises shouldn't weigh as heavily on you. And so I think that's something that we, you know, intuitively recognize um, psychologically. And I don't know if either of you had anything yeah, more to say. Bring your, bring your troubles to Christ and let, uh, let him deal with it. It's kind of the idea that everything's going to be okay in the end. Yeah, that's ultimately, uh, that's my thought too, is that, you know, if you're Christian, we, we know the end of the story, you know, everyone's going to die at some point, but that, you know, if that's the worst that can happen, given that we know about, you know, life after death, I mean, uh, it, it's really not quite as scary of a world once you take that into account. Yeah, looks like small potatoes. 
That's right. All right. I wanted to bring up the monopoly power of government again. And so one quick example, since we've talked on and off about Bitcoin at various points, is money. So government has a law on the books that says you can't have your own currency. Um, there's been a few cases where people have tried it and went to jail for it. And so what's kind of interesting about Bitcoin is because it's decentralized, the government's looking at this saying, oh my gosh, what do we do with this? Because nobody actually owns it or controls it. Um, and so that's been giving the government trouble with their current monopoly on money here in the United States. And then other governmental powers, uh, as they start to have a process that doesn't work really well, what Peter was saying is that that would be costly normally to a private business and their cost of production would go up. And then the business owner would think, oh man, this just isn't working very good. Maybe I should sell the assets or maybe do something else. Whereas in the government's problem, as they're not doing something well and it becomes more costly, they're just like, oh, I guess we just need to raise taxes again because things are getting more expensive, must be inflation or something. <laughs> and so there's no mechanism there to keep that in check. Now, every once in a while, a bureaucrat steps to the plate and says, you know, we gotta, this is ridiculous that we do it this way. And maybe we can sub a private business to handle this. The first thing that came to mind, maybe it's because my mind is on money, is uh, the check clearing function for the Federal Reserve. In the old days, originally, the Federal Reserve would clear all of our checks. And then I believe it was in the 80s, they started hiring private companies that were, you know, of course, kind of quasi-private. The government still had to monitor it, but literally uh, a private company put out to forbid to say, hey, I can I can clear these checks and handle that function for you just fine. And so um, that there, that's just one example of how the government could morph over time, allowing more private sector hands to handle different functions, as opposed to always continuing to try to do those functions themselves. Yeah, I, I agree with that. that. And that's one of the sort of the optimistic take that we talked about earlier, that sometimes people, for whatever reason, will pull back. And one of the nice things is, you know, when it becomes so costly to do something that you're destroying a ton of wealth, that's going to make people unhappy. And so if the government, if there are government bureaucracies out, bureaucracies out there that are doing a lot of damage, you know, if that becomes clear, then people are going to be unhappy. And so that's one of the nice things is that there, there are examples like Russ just pointed out where, you know, the government lets go and, you know, the, something like check clearing switches over to private hands. I feel like this could get sidetracked too much, so we don't have to say much, but I, correct me if I'm wrong, but the original, one of the checks and balances, if you will, of the government and the government being wasteful uh, would be the media and press. And uh, I think we've seen that function morph over time in a not so good way to where it seems like a lot of the media is supporting certain ways of doing businesses. And now we have our silos of, let's just call it Fox Business and, and MSNBC or whatever, uh, of people reporting. And then we have the other factor of people getting their news from their own private sources. And we all now stay in our silos. And here's 2021, where we fight with each other and only talk to people that we think think the same as us. Yeah, it's certainly the, the, the downside of this, you know, using citizens being upset with governments to basically overturn its ability to do things. The downside of that is it requires people to have a lot more information and to act with a lot less incentive than, you know, on a, a private market, certainly. Yeah. So what's this boomerang effect that you uh, talked about at break, Peter? Yeah. So uh, the boomerang, boomerang effect is by uh, Professor Dr. Chris Coyne uh, and also uh, another professor, Dr. Abby Hall. There, there are two professors of economics. Chris is at George Mason. I, I'm not, I, I can't off the top of my head think of where, where Abby is a pro professor at. 
But, uh, you know, they, they've done a lot of analysis in the tradition of Robert Higgs and his, uh, you know, ratchet effect that we discussed earlier. And one of the things that they noticed in their research about, uh, you know, basically post-war changes, that is like after, you know, even though we're not quite at after yet, but like after the Iraq war, if you can think of it like that, they, what they noticed is that uh, a lot of, you know, crises that we create temporary measures for, uh, we also sometimes create measures that are intended for other people that find their way back home. And so not only do temporary measures tend to stay, but measures that are intended for other audiences, maybe, you know, specifically some wartime policies that we intend to go to uh, foreign citizens. And so, for example, we developed, you know, uh, certain military technologies to fight Al-Qaeda. What they noticed is you, you find some of these same technologies, in other words, the, some of the same investments that we used against, you know, Al-Qaeda or in the Vietnam War, find their way back into the US. And so this is the boomerang effect. Basically, you, you throw out the boomerang to another country uh, and a lot of people invest in specific, you know, like human capital. And so someone invests in, well, how do we break into a building with our soldiers and make sure that all of our soldiers uh, live and we neutralize the targets. But when the war ends, uh, for example, the Vietnam War, uh, it's not necessarily the case that, that those investments go away. The tanks still exist, you know, the armored vehicles still exist, and the human capital still exists. And so a lot of things, uh, Dr. Coyne and Dr. Hall finds, uh, that we use with our modern policing, for example, uh, were things developed in wartime. And so SWAT teams, for example, mm. are, are specifically a product of uh, wartime investment in trying to figure out how to neutralize targets. Uh, and so modern SWAT teams in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, in police departments were actually created as uh, tools of war to implement in other countries while the U.S. Uh, was fighting. Uh, and you get the same thing. You've probably heard of this before, of like police departments purchasing but like bulk armored vehicles uh, that were intended to deal with like exploding, you know, IEDs in other countries. Uh, now police departments are like rolling down in the suburbs with armored vehicles, uh, just totally unnecessarily. And so, you know, crises have these two effects. So it causes temporary measures to become permanent. It also causes measures that weren't intended for some people to be used on those same, on different people than were intended. Yeah, so the uh, uh, original ratchet, in my opinion, would be the Great Depression. And I think we saw, you know, the uptick with unemployment rates in 25% and, and people just willing to allow that ratchet to happen, thinking that that would be the one... Uh, straw that would help mend uh, the economy. And further research after that, including Ben Bernanke, Milton Friedman, and others, the lesser known factor was how government might have been the one to really contribute to that depression in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so to try to mend it with more government is, is kind of ridiculous on, on the front end that holds. And I'm, I tend to be one that says that that's probably likely the case. I mean, go further back than you world war one yeah right and from that we get what income tax mm -hmm. 1913 was the original income tax date 13 or 14 yeah somewhere around there but around the start of that which would have been to help fund it i suppose at that time or at least the unrest that was going on yeah yeah, so I, I think that basically the, the consistent theme that we're, we're getting out here, one element that we're missing from this talk about crisis uh, that we've sort of alluded to with our discussion about faith is one of the nice things about the world is you can actually look around 
and see that it's clear that none of these crises have ever like come to a, a full fruition. Now, of course, some crises were legitimate. We just mentioned World War One, World War One, World War Two. These are, are big crises that actually, you know, could have ended very badly. And, you know, in a way did a lot of people died in those wars. And so there, there were lots of issues that came out of them, of course. Uh, though of the, the ultimate resolution of the conflicts we say is good, uh, certainly generated some problems. But, you know, there have been a lot of crises that have been mentioned over time. You know, we had, you know, the avian flu was talked about, the swine flu was talked about. Uh, you know, we were predicting mass starvation in the 1970s. A lot of ecologists were focused on that. A lot of this doom and gloom just hasn't panned out. That's one of the nice things. And so you look at the world today, most goods are cheaper than they've ever been in human history, a few exceptions. You have to work less time for them than you ever have before. People in the U.S. at least, and so I, I'm kind of focusing on our narrow world, have more access to healthcare than they used to. Again, people focus on like blips in healthcare prices, but compare now to 100 years ago, uh, we're more than fine. Even disease mortality rates uh, with coronavirus, if you compare now to, you know, 1920, uh, there, there's no question, the average in 1920 in disease mortality rates was worse than it is today. And that was like the norm. And so our worst year in recent history for, for uh, disease mortality is better than the norm just 100 years ago. And so despite these crises, one of the nice things uh, is that, uh, you know, things have tended to pan out and, uh, you know, human creativity and ingenuity, uh, at least from the, the private sector, uh, ten, tends to beat out these crises. I don't know how we're going to turn around the bailout concept in the United States. I feel like it's it's just at some sort of tipping point, short of a major crisis of inflation, which I think they will manage so that it's not you know crazy hyperinflation or something. Um, but it, it might lead to a, a greater recession, and then we're back to uh, extended unemployment and everything. I just, I, I don't see a, a natural way for that cycle to change and that we will continue to have big government and bailouts and um, continue on this path. Um, I'm 50 years old, almost uh, starting in August and I, I don't see it changing um, till my grave, till I meet my maker. Well, one of the nice things we, we talked about last podcast and uh, again today, you know, as I mentioned, really at the root of a lot of these uh, fixes to crises is tends to be like human ingenuity uh, and people in the private sector coming up with solutions. I think that's happened again. You know, we, yeah. we, we mentioned in the last podcast that Bitcoin is one way that people have sort of gotten around the fact that you're, you're right, Russ, the government response right now and the one that keeps bureaucracies alive is we need more programs help more special interest groups. We need corporate welfare. We need, you know, stimulus payments to citizens. We need unemployment benefits that are so high that people would prefer not to work. You know, all these different programs that you think would become nested. Well, they cost something. And as people substitute away from organizations that are taking things from them and to organizations that are, you know, providing a value. And so these are like, you know, uh, different sort of places that sell Bitcoin, allow people to store their wealth in different ways. I actually do think there are alternatives rising up. And, you know, the nice thing is that uh, eventually government's going to have to face the economic reality. Hopefully that doesn't come at a huge cost to American citizens, uh, but scarcity exists whether the government wants it to or not. So, yeah. Well, in turning towards more effective redistribution schemes of universal basic income, which again, I'm not trying to open up a can of worms that we could have a whole other podcast on or something, but we, and we've hashed that over a, a couple different times. It's probably certainly worth hashing again, but uh, how those roles of government will evolve over time. 
uh, I hope it involves competition. Um, I think Hayek once said, I can't remember which paper, but with all thy planning, let's plan for competition. So the government's plan, in other words, should be to plan for competitive forces to be able to do their thing, even within government functions. So I would like to say, first of all, I think people should not be afraid to bet on themselves. And by that, I mean, you know, Peter has mentioned some other alternatives to working within the system. And I think that this, there's a tendency for people to complain about the current system uh, and think that the current system is broken without making even a small effort to uh, do some work outside of that system. And I think um, to the extent that you think that the current system is broken, bet on your knowledge and your, uh, you know, put your money where your mouth is a little, at least a little bit. And the other thing I would say is, you know, to get back to my point, when we started the second half, we started this podcast talking about how crises, you know, people can become fixated with crises and the government can especially. And now, uh, you know, there's this tendency of, of us too, to say, you know, look at all these actual crises that we're in. And this reminds me, I, I can't resist this story, but when I was in my twenties, I was living in San Francisco and within about a month, I was fired from a job, girlfriend broke up with me and then my car's transmission exploded. <laughs> And I went out to lunch with my dad's best friend and my dad's best friend's good friend. And this guy was a colonel in Vietnam, a career military. And he was also very funny, but, you know, a no nonsense kind of guy. And he asked me, you know, how are you doing, Justin? And I remember saying, you know, what I, you know I'm really bummed out. You know, my car, I have no car. I've got no job. I've got no girlfriend. And he looked at me and he said, and you know what, Justin? You're going to look back on these as the good days. Uh, <laughs> this is as good as it gets, and it's all downhill from here. <laughs> that sounds like expectations management. There. Yeah, and, and well, of course, I think, you know, my life has gotten exponentially better since then. You know, I'm married, I have kids, I have a career that I love. Um, look, I was 25 running around San Francisco with very little responsibilities, and I was healthy. Like, what yeah. the hell was I complaining about? Right, right. <laughs> and so... I think that it, we should live uh, knowing that, you know, as Peter said, goods are as che cheaper than they've ever been before. There's something about appreciating the non-crisis parts of your life that I think we should focus on. Yeah, too. absolutely. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you all for listening. We are over 10,000 downloads, as we mentioned, uh, oh, a little while ago, we broke our 10,000 barrier. And so we certainly appreciate you all listening. Hope you get out a lot out of it and uh, refer your friends to our podcast as well. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Mm -hmm.